So I think he would say to those who are his theological forebears, do not neglect mercy ministry. It is an essential part of the church's ministry. It's not an optional add-on. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Ken Keithley, and in today's episode, we'll talk with Dr. Alex DePrima about Charles Spurgeon's views of social activism. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like sports, news, pop culture, business, all from a Christian perspective. And this month on our Christ and Culture blog, we're celebrating Sports Month. So, in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about the NBA. A few weeks ago, LeBron James passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the most points scored all time in the National Basketball Association, or what we call the NBA. But the debate is still raging. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? If you don't know these names, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, uh, pull your head out of the cultural sand because these are just icons in our world, like it or not. And today, with me is a Southeastern alum, a dear friend, and also a pastor in Kentucky, Mr. Merrick Nunn, we're going to discuss for just a few minutes as part of our headlines, who's the greatest, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Merrick, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be on the on the podcast. I am as well. So just so you guys know, listeners behind the scenes, uh, Merrick and I have been debating this discussion for several <laughs> years now. And as part of Sports Month, so we're in March now, as part of Sports Month, we're going to have a lot of conversation about sports, both in blog, podcast, etc., and of course, this being March Madness Month, we thought it was appropriate to have this discussion. But as always, the discussion will turn towards a faith and culture conversation. But to begin with, uh, Merrick, give us your case. You're, you're taking the LeBron position here. I'm going to respond from a Jordan position. But give us your give us your argument for why LeBron is the greatest of all time. A lot of people think of Jordan's greatness. They think of him because he really is an icon. Like he's almost an untouchable icon. I read this week, someone said, no basketball player will ever make me feel what Michael Jordan made me feel. And I think that's mm. the sentiment I get from a lot of Jordan folks. But really, if you come back to numbers of on-the-court statistics, LeBron overall is the greatest basketball player. From points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, just Across the board, I think it's it's a hard argument not to look and say that that LeBron's the greatest all-around basketball player to ever play. And so there's a lot of nuances in that and a lot of things, but but just bare minimum. Scottie Pippen said it this way one day. He said on first take, he made the comment that Jordan's the greatest scorer to ever play the game, but LeBron's the greatest all-around player. And he still said he'd take Jordan in a one game for his life, but that's because he would be on the team with Jordan. And so that would make sense because he and Jordan did a lot together. But that's that's really the position that I would come from, because I think there's a lot more to the Jordan argument than just uh, Jordan won six rings. Well, Jordan had a really doggone good team that was always favored over the other team, even in the NBA finals. So I think there's just a lot more nuance than that than just who's better, just yeah. looking at at rings, if you will. All right, so boil it down. If LeBron is the greatest of all time, give me your give me your key reasons. Here are my bullet point stake reasons why LeBron's the greatest of all time. 
All right, so I'll put it this way. LeBron, whenever he's with the team, you've seen it on three separate occasions. Whenever he was with the Cavaliers, they were a top team in the East, took them to the finals in 2007. He left the team. They immediately became the worst team in the NBA. He went to Miami, and while he was with Miami, he had two future Hall of Famers, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, went to four straight finals. He leaves, and with those two guys still there, they don't even make the playoffs. He comes back to Cleveland. He's with Cleveland again. They go from not making the playoffs. Now they did pick up Kevin Love whenever he got there, but four more NBA finals. Beat the greatest team ever assembled statistically, the Golden State Warriors in, in 2016, 73 and 9, and did it that year in 2016 in a way at, at a level that I've never seen anybody play. He led both teams in points, rebounds, assists, blocks, and steals in the NBA Finals. It's never been done in a playoff series, much less in the finals against the number one team that's ever played the game. He leaves Cleveland again, and they're back to the same spot, the worst team in the NBA. It just whenever he's there, it seems like whatever pieces are around him while he was in his prime, he could succeed um, because he could literally do everything. He could do everything. So for me, that's really the argument for LeBron is you could throw him on almost any team whenever he was in his prime, and they would they would be a top team in the NBA if not have a really good chance to win it all. And I don't think that's true for Jordan at, at, throughout Jordan's career. Okay, so to boil it down, just to make sure I understand your, your case well, bottom line is really two things, and you correct me if I'm wrong, two things. One, the sum total of statistics that he's accumulated – by way of points, steals, rebounds, assists, just the complete game for a basketball player on both sides of the floor, both ends of the floor. Um, so you're going to put one big claim on that, that he has just accumulated such a massive number of stats and the chief of them being now the greatest scorer of all time. And then the second main claim behind that would be that every team that he's went to, he not only made it better, it was obvious when he left that they were they just could not be the same team without him. Is that fair? Yeah, Matthew Dellavedova was his best player in one NBA Finals. I think that says a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, everybody on the podcast just went, "Who? Who is? How do you say that name again?" Yeah, that, yeah. which is everybody, true. Everybody knew Delly for a little while there. So, but you know, and I know we don't have time to discuss all of it. But for me, the point that's pushed me to LeBron in a lot of ways has been a lot more looking more into Jordan. I think the more I've looked into Jordan, the more I see he's an icon. And there's a lot of things we say he did or a lot of things we glorify that I, whenever you go back and look at it, it doesn't tell the same story. So I'm going to come at it from the Jordan side. I do agree with those that say Magic and Larry basically kept the NBA from collapsing and then Jordan put it on the map. But I think even, even the LeBron himself and the greatest LeBron fans would say, yeah, LeBron couldn't be the LeBron that he is were it not for the Jordan era. And and even the dream team really kind of putting the yeah. NBA on the global map the way that it did. But yeah. to go straight to Jordan, I'm going to I'll state mine on several categories. I think Jordan's the greatest of all time for these reasons. One, not the sum total of stats, but what I would call the complete stats. So it would be not only average points per game, uh, number of defensive player in the year, number of MVPs, number of all-star appearances. But I think what we have to top it off with is that he appeared in six championships, he won six championships, and he was the MVP in six championships. And that's before we get into the granular stuff of scoring titles, offense and defense, steals and assists, all, I mean, all that kind of stuff. If you just go stat by stat, you can almost go tit for tat Jordan and LeBron. I think at the end of the day, I could take all of these categories, complete stats, overall impact on the game, making your teammates better, which LeBron does a really good job of, and rings and just take championship rings. I can I can combine all of those together and basically just say who is the greatest winner of all time. If you got to pick one of these guys on your team, I'm taking Jordan every day. And it's not because LeBron's not a great player. 
but because Jordan always found out how to win. Franchise impact, to your point about every game or every team that he's gone to, he's made it so much better. And, and then when he left those teams, they they dropped off. I think you can make the same case with Jordan, though. Even though he made such huge franchise impact on the Chicago Bulls, he shows up and they're nothing. And within a few years, they're the dynasty that we all remember. But remember, he left in the middle of that. He wins three championships, so he three-peats. He leaves to play baseball for a little while. And the only reason that he comes back, arguably, is because baseball, professional baseball goes on strike. He comes back. While he's gone, they're not very good. Now, they're not they're not terrible, but they're not good. They didn't make the finals. They won two less games. They won 57 and 93. They won 55 and 94. So two less games from whenever he retired to before, which would go back to the six-ring argument. For LeBron to win a ring – even whenever he was historically great, doing things nobody ever even done in a finals series, they could still lose. Jordan never had to do that to win an NBA finals. And you could go, I mean, like, just go to whenever they played the Supersonics. He shot, I remember Gary Payton switched on him in game three, and he shot less than 30% from the field over the next three games. And the Bulls still won all three games. I mean, he ended, ended the series winning the finals MVP, but he shot horrible and yet they still won but that goes back to scotty's point scotty could lead in rebounds and assists and these other areas and he did the majority of the time in the finals era mj was there he had to score he had to score that was his thing lebron has never had that luxury he's had to rebound pass get assists blocks i mean he's he's had to be the total package for them to be anything anytime they've done anything and even then they could still lose and i, I would argue i mean pretty clearly i think jordan never had that that, that difficulty. Whenever he had to do that, he got beat. And then Scotty came and then he had the one, two punch that it was Scotty was who he needed. He was the type of guy that he needed. And then after he retired, they just got better. I mean, they even have an assistant coach who said that, like whenever he left, it allowed the team to grow without him and pull in pieces like Dennis Rodman, Tony Kukoc got to flesh out and become a greater player. And then whenever he came back, he just had to score. And I mean, well, let me make sure I understand round. that, though. You're you're saying when Jordan left, the Bulls got better when he left the first time to go play baseball. The Bulls got better. I'm saying they got better as a as a team. I'm not saying the team was better without Jordan. No, no. I'm saying the team was able to get better without him. So whenever he came back, he came to a better team than he left. That's what I mean. Well, I don't disagree with that. But at the end of the day, what you can't I think what we can't argue with and, it, and it's hard to monitor. It's hard to sort of quantify every one of these pieces but this is my case about Jordan always making the entire team better and LeBron does too but my point is who's the greatest winner of all time if we're talking about the greatest basketball player of all time for me it comes down to which one am I going to pick on the team who's the greatest winner of all time and that's going to be Jordan but I'm not sure that that LeBron is is as smart of a basketball player when it comes to how can I win even if I don't win the statistics game I just know how to win the game that we're playing right now so that we get the ring and I think that's where Jordan, at the end of the day, I don't know. That's went tough. back around that's the greater winner. But I think if you look over the totality of it, LeBron had to be great in every way for them to win. And MJ did not have to be great in every way. He had to be exceedingly incredible in a few areas, and he was, and scoring it in others. But even then, if you give the scoring thing, he averages more shots a game. And, I mean, you have – I'm not even a fan of advanced analytics in a lot of ways, but if you give LeBron the same amount of shots, LeBron's averaging the same amount of points. So – it's just it, it kind of goes back and forth. Um, I just think LeBron had to do the most. He had to do the most, and even then, he could be he could be phenomenal. Let me bring it full circle. What difference does this make for Christians today? So this is a fun cultural sort of sports conversation, but I think there's also some analogs or some things we can learn about our Christian walk in conversations like this. So, Pastor Merritt, tell us what this has to do with faith and culture. 
I think first, one of the things we've discussed is just the the value of listening to other people's viewpoints. Um, you know, this is a, a conversation that I enjoy having, but I enjoy people engaging in the different questions that I have or, um, you know, listening and, and discussing through something. So I think there's a lot of value that this has in learning how to communicate and and still love one another, still be friends in the midst of, of disagreement, but learning how to talk to one another. I think that's one major, major point that I would point out. And very true as well, as we think about um, things like uh, politics. So here we are, we're talking about sports and we can get passionate and even animated about it, but we can walk away still hugging necks and shaking hands as friends. Um, we, we learn how to disagree with great charity in these conversations. Is that is that your main point? You and I've had this discussion plenty of times. I think that's probably one of my favorite things of having conversations like this with you is me and you're going to joke about it. Like I'm always going to poke fun at you about LeBron and you'll always poke fun at me about Jordan, but we do it in a spirit of, of love and grace. And even in a humility, I mean, I think that there's a humility in, in, in an argument like this or just real world value and saying, Hey, this is the way that I feel, but ultimately it's LeBron or Jordan. This doesn't make a difference in what I do today. Um, I can have a humility to say that I'm wrong, or I could have a humility to say that, you know, you're right. There's stuff that I can't see. And and so I think there's a lot of real world value in that, even whenever it comes to how we practice our faith in the midst of a of of the culture that is around us. So let me ask you one more question, just in terms of how this might connect with our faith and our culture. You and I both are pastors. We preach and teach regularly. How often do we use illustrations in sermons or in teaching where we pivot to some kind of a sports metaphor? Paul Paul does this as well. I mean, Paul is is, is yeah. uh, commonly talking about sports or using sports metaphors. Jesus is almost always using agrarian metaphors. Paul loves to use the the athletic metaphors. Um, so how often do we pivot to those things and then? And then we lean further into those analogies or those examples and metaphors by who are the great exemplars and how the Jordans and LeBrons and the Currys, and we could even switch sports, how they inspire us towards excellence, towards virtue, towards hard work, towards overcoming adversity, and ultimately um, pointing us towards uh, towards Christ in many ways, if we're using them the right way. Is, it, is that a fair way to, to incorporate those examples? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, you talk about I'll just I'll just talk about LeBron in my my instances. There is something to be admired about someone who is 20 years into a sport and you know is still at playing. I mean, not not the best of his game, but obviously still playing well. And I mean, he spends over a million dollars on his body. He he puts so much into his effort. And you know, I know it's so true for sports figures, but how much more so should it be for us? I mean, you you alluded to First Corinthians nine of Paul talking about you know how we strive. Um, just, you know, we, we don't just swing like we're, like we're boxing at the air. No, we, we have an aim and how much greater is it for us to discipline ourselves, to discipline our bodies, um, to want to stand before the Lord one day, not to receive a perishable wreath, but an imperishable. And I think you're exactly right. It, it's, uh, it's amazing how sports connects with people. And it's amazing how, whenever you talk about sports, um, you know, we can see how hard work pays off here. And we can see even the vanity of it. I don't know who won the NBA finals in, in 65 or in 75 or maybe even 85, but I know this, what we do now echoes echoes into eternity, right? Like what we do yeah. now matters, matters forever. And so even as we look at these sports analogies, they really do remind us that, man, if we, if someone's going to run that hard for a sport that ultimately isn't going to mean anything, how much harder should we who say, 
who say, we say that we believe in an eternity and everything we do now matters for that. How much, how much harder should we be running? How much more should we endure every setback, endure every hardship? How much more should we seek to set our aims on Christ and not let anything keep us from getting that, get, getting in the way of, of running the race to win the prize? I think Amen. that's a, I a, a very, very clear connection. Amen. I hear a lot of Paul and I hear a lot of Hebrews in there too. Um, yeah. Sounds like, sounds like a sermon brewing. Maybe you've already preached that one. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Not yet. It'll come though. Merrick, thanks for joining us today. This is a lot of fun. I hope we can, uh, I hope we can do this again soon. And uh, we're glad to have people on even when they're wrong about these things, but we're just glad to have you on. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate it a lot. What did Spurgeon think about social activism, and what can we learn from him? Here to discuss with us today is Dr. Alex DePrima. Dr. Prima is senior pastor of Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He holds a Ph.D. from our very own Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in historical theology with a focus on the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Dr. DePrima has published several articles with Nine Mark Ministries, the Spurgeon Center, and our own Christ and Culture blog. He's author of a new book, Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Dr. Keeley, thanks for having me. It really is a pleasure to be on with you guys. So why did you become interested in Spurgeon and why should we care who Charles Spurgeon was? Uh, yeah, I became interested in Spurgeon from a pretty young age. I, I grew up in a church and within a, a group of churches that would have seen themselves as something of the theological heirs of Spurgeon. It would have been a Reformed Baptist context. Uh, the church I grew up in held to the 1689 Confession, Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which Spurgeon himself held to. And um, it was in the, the the key of Spurgeonic preaching and Spurgeonic theology and um, he was quoted often in the church I grew up in. His, his sermons were sold, his books were sold in the bookstore. I tell people he was kind of like background music that was playing uh, throughout my childhood. He was always there. And then kind of like with the, the records that maybe your parents listened to when you were growing up, at some point you start listening to them for yourself and you realize, you know, this music's kind of cool. And uh, that Led Zeppelin and Simon and Garfunkel actually, you know, are worth listening to. Never thought I'd hear Charles Spurgeon and Led Zeppelin. Uh, well, I'm not sure he would approve of, of those artists, but yeah. It's, I think uh, it's also the first time I've heard the word Spurgeonic, but I, I, that's good, Alex. I'm learning good. here. So tell me, who was he? When did he live and where was he? Yeah, so he was a 19th century Victorian preacher in London. He began his career in the East Country. He was a, a country kid, uh, grew up in a rural area. Uh, and at a very young age, he was well converted at the age of 15, but shortly thereafter uh, begins to preach and just evidences this extraordinary preaching gift from a very young age, just seemed to be anointed by God. And wherever he goes, crowds follow him. He's preaching Christ uh, with boldness and with clarity uh, in his teenage years. Eventually, at the age of 19, he gets called to a historic Baptist church in London, one of the oldest of uh, the London Baptist churches. And he would pastor there from 1854 to his death in 1892. So nearly 40 years, uh, one congregation that was first called the New Park Street Chapel uh, would later move and change its name to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and was under his leadership, the largest church in Christendom. Uh, he would 
publish his sermons that are now contained in, well, it was 63 volumes until recently, uh, Dr. Jeff Chang and the folks at Midwestern have published the Lost Sermons Project, which expands it now to about 70 volumes, uh, published more words in English than any other Christian in uh, history. And um, yeah, and still incredibly relevant to folks today, being read now uh, by by more people today than at any time during his lifetime. And that's saying quite a lot because he was probably the most well-known and popular preacher of his generation. My understanding is, is that he would preach to literally thousands on every Sunday service without the aid of any kind of electronic amplification. So he would preach to 5,000 and that uh, people, they, they sold tickets to get, to get to hear him preach. You had to, uh, like going to a ball game, you had to buy a ticket. Is that true? Kind of, not exactly. So he did preach to thousands. The Metropolitan Tabernacle could seat just north of 6,000. And they had a morning and evening service. And usually at the evening service, at least half of that assembly would be different from the audience that was there in the morning. Uh, the thing about selling tickets it usually had to do with communion. He never sold tickets, but you had to secure tickets to come to the communion table, which was one of the ways they actually kept track of their membership. So you they would know if their membership was uh, attending church faithfully or not based on whether or not they turned in their tickets at the communion table. And if you were visiting you know, in town and you wanted to come to a communion service, you would have to secure a ticket in order to do that. So yeah, he never sold tickets to my knowledge, but um, but did give them out for certain services. He was very much a pastor in the Reformed tradition, remarkably conservative in his theology and view of scriptures. Yeah, he, he certainly believed in the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, it's a different context for Spurgeon. This is um, the, the mid to late 19th century. You know, he's just beginning to feel the pressure of sort of uh, uh, German approaches to theology, the incursion of higher criticism and things like that. Uh, it's at the end of his career where we really see this uh, in, in sort of dramatic and, and vivid colors uh, in what's known as the downgrade controversy. Spurgeon becomes concerned that in his denomination, uh, the Baptist Union, uh, that more and more preachers are imbibing liberal theology and higher critical views of Scripture, undermining the authority and inerrancy of the Scripture. There would have been preachers in his denomination denying the veracity of miracles, uh, the inerrancy of the Bible, things like that. And uh, so toward the very end of his life, late 1880s into the 1890s, he makes this uh, historic stand for the authority of the scriptures and the historic orthodox doctrines of the Bible against the tide of liberalism. But that really is the very end of his life that that happens. But yeah, a tremendous proponent of the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of the Bible. Yeah, and he, 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 he pays a tremendous price personally in his health and his reputation for it, which all the more, when we hear uh, of this type of preacher, we think of someone who's a rock-ribbed conservative, someone, someone who's going to maybe even, I think we can almost use the word fundamentalist to describe him, and yet, and yet, his attitude towards social issues today would be considered, dare I use the word, liberal? I've, uh, <laughs> would that be fair? How, how would we describe—let's talk about— how Spurgeon understood the relationship between gospel preaching and social concern. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of context to that word liberal. Um, you know, in, in the books, Spurgeon and the Poor, I include an appendix at the end that tries to sort of situate Spurgeon historically. 
and it's it's more suggestive than you know arguing a clear thesis there. But I I try to make the point that from the standpoint of Reformed and Evangelical history, Spurgeon's eagerness to engage in mercy ministry, social activism, uh, uh, helping widows and orphans, being engaged in that kind of social work, that kind of social concern, is not at all an anomaly. That if you would look at what things Calvin was doing in Geneva to set up mechanisms to help the poor, if you consider the eagerness of the early evangelicals to establish all kinds of benevolent ministries and things like that, to speak out for the oppressed and the afflicted and all that, that Spurgeon actually appears in you know perfect continuity with those earlier movements and figures. I make the case that it's really in the 20th century that the whole idea that uh, an emphasis on mercy ministry and eagerness to help the oppressed uh, to provide aid for the poor and things like that, that that comes to be seen as an impulse of theological liberalism. And then, you know, later we call political liberalism uh, in large part due to where things went in the 20th century. You did have the emergence of the social gospel. A lot of the theological liberals, when they begin to erode many of the biblical doctrines of the faith, such as the atonement or the veracity, reality, eternality of hell and things like that, there's not much left to the Christian faith and a sort of sentimental kind of love for neighbor. And so I think a lot of conservatives in the 20th century sort of are responding to where, where they see people engage in social work, concerned about social issues, concerned about helping the poor. We sort of associate that with being an impulse of liberalism. Whereas Spurgeon would have never thought that way. He would have thought this is just sort of plain working out the implications of the gospel, uh, the desire to be merciful to others, to help the needy, to clothe the naked. That's just sort of basic Christianity. That's what we've been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And um, so I think context matters a lot in this discussion. But you're exactly right. He would argue there's a direct link between uh, our understanding of the preaching of the gospel, the power of the gospel in our lives, and the effect that has on us as Christian people. Those who've experienced the grace of God are themselves to become gracious in their orientation toward others. So he says, one of the many quotes that I include in the book, he says, to me, a Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. He says, wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of the Christian's love, and where he cannot help, he pities still. His idea is, is there that, that if we ourselves have been shown such extraordinary grace and mercy from Christ, we become sort of the, the benefactors of society, universally merciful and kind toward needy people. Um, we want to help those who are impoverished or those who are uh, widowed or orphaned or in distress. Now, where he doesn't go with that is he doesn't embrace uh, like Christian socialism, which is a, a burgeoning movement of the late 19th century. Uh, he certainly, you know, wouldn't be what folks today call woke or something like that. I know that's a, a phrase that's, you know, hard to define. Uh, he he doesn't try to transform society through political maneuvering and things like that. But he is concerned that we as Christians individually would be gracious toward others, compassionate toward the needy, eager to be engaged in good works. As, as Titus 2.14 says, Christ came to redeem a people who would be zealous for good works. Uh, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord speaks about uh, the community of disciples being like a city set on a hill, that people will see our good deeds, give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's those kinds of deeds of mercy and benevolence. Spurgeon just wants to see those exploding out of the Christian community and marking the people of God. 
So on a personal level and as a at, and a corporate level of the church, he's very much engaged in uh, mercy ministries. Uh, you mentioned uh, that he would not have been concerned or uh, attempting to transform society via politics. Uh, was he ever engaged in British politics, the politics of England? Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, he himself identified uh, in a in a very uh, overt way with one of the main political parties in England. So you would have had the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party, and he was a devoted liberal. Now we have to understand the context of those terms. The Liberal Party in England in the twentieth or excuse me, nineteenth century uh, looked more like the cons- the more conservative party in America today. So don't think, you know, liberal in England in the 19th century maps onto liberals in America today. Very, very different platforms. So what we would think of as more conservative views of, say, economic, social policy in America, Spurgeon would usually be for those kinds of things. And that that's part of the platform of liberals in the, the 19th century in England. Uh, but yes, he was a big supporter of William Gladstone, who uh, uh, was the prime minister at three different times throughout uh, the 19th century. He spoke about voting for the liberals. That said, he was very committed to guarding uh, the pulpit and making sure that the pulpit itself was not the arena in which political activism and partisanship sort of sort of came to bear. He did not preach politics from the pulpit. He instructed his students, his book, Lectures to My Students, who I know many folks have read who have considered the ministry or in pastoral ministry, he instructs his students, do not bring politics into the pulpit. You're to preach the word of God. Certainly, if you're going to speak to a, a, a scriptural issue that happens to have application in the political arena, that's, of course, fine. But you're there to preach the word of God, not you know political partisanship. Uh, now, it does appear uh, in his monthly magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, uh, which I tell people was kind of like Spurgeon's blog back in those days. You know, it's 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 uh, a periodical he would send out. Had a uh, about fifteen thousand regular subscribers. He shows a little more of a willingness to speak to political issues in the sword and the trowel, but but almost never in the pulpit. Uh, some of the issues that gripped his heart, he was concerned about slavery in America. I was going to ask you what because he had such a worldwide audience. Oh yeah. Yeah, what was the reception? You know, what did he say about slavery and how was that received in the South at that time? Because we're talking about someone in the 1850s and 60s during the time of the Civil War. Oh, yeah. So in the 1850s, he it's not like he's talking about slavery a ton. Um, he's in England. He's speaking to his congregation there. And yet it would come up in some sermons. The slavery issue had largely been dealt with in England by that time uh, through the work of William Wilberforce and his friends. Uh, but was still an institution in the American South, uh, United States. The Spurgeon discovers through a friend that as his sermons are being published in America, uh, the proceeds of which, by the way, he's using to establish his pastor's college, like his seminary over in England, he comes to discover that they had been editing out any reference to slavery or anything that looked toward man stealing and things like that, uh, editing those out of his sermons before publishing them without Spurgeon's consent. And I just think this speaks to Spurgeon's character and integrity. He easily could have turned a blind eye to that. You know, he's he's definitely using the money he's making from these sermon sales to a good cause in training pastors. He could have thought, look, it's it's subtraction, not addition. Uh, that's their issue. They can do that if they want. But he decides to make a big, a big issue out of it. And um, he starts to speak more vocally about the slavery issue. He insists that his publishers not edit out uh, those references to slavery and kind of puts the American South on blast in a number of significant public statements 
uh, that he asked to be printed in newspapers in America. Now, keep in mind, in the 1850s, Spurgeon sermons are being published in the New York Times. I mean, this is crazy for us to think about now, but he's he's a, a leading public celebrity in the Western world. But the reaction to the stand he takes on slavery, I mean, he's saying things like, I would sooner commune at the Lord's table with a murderer than I would a, a man-stealer. Uh, I would never accept into the membership of my church anyone involved in, in you know, America's peculiar institution, they called it. You know? uh, and so uh, what happens is the South basically censures Spurgeon. In towns across the South, you have public book burnings. Uh, there are newspaper articles I could show you uh, that others have, have have published online of, you know, in, in towns in Alabama, even in our own North Carolina, saying, hey, come down to the town square. We're going to be burning all of our Spurgeon books. Uh, he receives death threats from folks in America. Lots of folks want him to come and visit America. Yeah, visit but not go back. Yeah, exactly. So, well, and, you know, even in our own North Carolina, I think you brothers are in North Carolina. I, I minister in Winston-Salem. It was illegal to read Spurgeon sermons in the late 1850s. It became if you were caught with Spurgeon's sermons, you were fined, uh, which is just wild to think. But it was over that stand on the slavery issue. Now, that that is obviously especially relevant to us today as Americans. He speaks to tons of other issues. So it's it's not as though this dominated his political commentary and dialogue. But that is an especially dramatic and I, I would say even heroic uh, instance of Spurgeon speaking to uh, an issue that demanded the attention of Christian people everywhere. And he spoke to it clearly um, in ways that I think honored the Lord and did credit to uh, Christian witness. We've kind of danced all around this, but let's just imagine that Spurgeon is alive in the 2010s and now into the 2020s. And we've had Trump, we've had COVID, we've had all kinds of riots, all kinds of this, this strange blend of not only social justice issues, but how it's mixed with politics. Mm-hmm. And all the while, just to, to put it in very specific perspective, I've been preaching through the minor prophets at our church and have mentioned a couple of times, first of all, that, that, that the Lord is angry at all of the leadership in multiple places in the prophets. Mm-hmm. He's angry at the, the priests, uh, but he's also angry at the kings and the governors and the, all the different types of authorities. So, sometimes he just goes directly after the men for not being men and leading well in their families and in their communities. I'm just curious, maybe the best way to, to sharpen the question would be, how would how would Spurgeon preach the prophets in 2023? Wow, that's quite a question. Um, if, if I can first say, in, in terms of our social context, you know, how Spurgeon might speak into it, and then I, I'll get to your more direct question about the, the minor prophets. You know, I think Spurgeon would have correctives to give to folks on the left and on the right when it comes to this issue of social justice and things like that. Uh, with respect to those on the left, I think he'd be very concerned about missional drift. So he, though he is uh, a huge advocate for mercy ministry and social concern and engagement with the poor and the needy, he is emphatic that the preaching of the gospel and the building up of healthy churches is the heart of the church's mission, not social activism. That said, he, he's going to argue that mercy ministry should proceed uh, out of the church's uh, mission and ministry, but it's not the primary thing. So he would probably critique, say, even a John Stott, who has that kind of two wings illustration of gospel mm-hmm. proclamation and, and, and social involvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's going to say the gospel proclamation wing is going to be way bigger than you know, the social. And I don't know what that does, if that makes you fly in a circle or crash or something. I don't know how the, the analogy breaks <laughs> down, but... He's going to say, our work, brothers, is to preach the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, see men and women converted to Christ, 
gather them into churches, build up those churches, and hopefully then those churches become hubs for all kinds of benevolent ministries and institutions and things like that. His own church had 66 benevolent institutions operating out of that one congregation in the heart of London. But then to those on the right, so to use a maybe a slightly controversial example, this uh, statement on social justice that I think MacArthur, Vody Bauckham, other guys like that were involved in, I think that Spurgeon would look at a statement like that and he'd say, okay, I, I, I don't find a ton to disagree with here, but there are some things that are missing. Hmm. Um, and I think he would say that to a lot of uh, Calvinistic Baptists like myself and folks in the Reformed community who today are not as well known for good works of compassion and mercy. Are, are we are we known, I'll, I'm just speaking for myself now, um, Are am I known, is my church known, or the kind of sister churches I'm involved with, are we known to be a people zealous for good works? Uh, do we do good to all, or just the household of faith? You know that statement by Paul in Galatians, let us do good to all, especially the household of faith. Well, yes, especially the household of faith, but we're also to do good to all. We're to be known for kindness, benevolence, mercy, care for the needy, true religion, James tells us involves care for the fatherless and the widow. So I think he would say to those who are his theological forebears, do not neglect mercy ministry. It is an essential part of the church's ministry. It's not an optional add-on or something that's merely preferable. No, it's essential that we who are the Lord's people be like our Lord, who cared for needy people, who, 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 who wept over the city of Jerusalem, not only because of unbelief, but often when he encountered disease and death and and affliction and oppression. So to your minor prophet's question, you know, uh, Spurgeon is not known, though he is a textual preacher. I wouldn't call him an expositional preacher. He would often preach one verse in isolation. I think you're being generous there. Uh, he, he rarely, uh, he never preached through books of the Bible in the way probably, well, probably the way you do, Dr. Quinn, and pre preaching through the minor prophets. He never did sermon series like that. I think that his notions of what biblical justice is, according to the minor prophets, would differ at many points with prevailing notions of what social justice is. Um, that's even hard to define what is social justice. There's probably a classical definition there uh, that has to do with redistributive type justice. If you read, yeah. you know, guys like F.A. Hayek, maybe in the 20th century, that's what he's critiquing when he critiques social justice. But he would argue for you know, biblical justice, that is giving people their due uh, using just weights and measures, not taking a bribe, not taking advantage of those who are less powerful than you. And when he saw those kinds of things happening in uh, contemporary England, uh, he was pretty pretty unequivocal and clear in denouncing those kinds of things. If he thought those in power were taking advantage of that power and oppressing those underneath their care, that was something he was very, you know, vigorously outspoken about. Alex, what would be some other things that uh, that Spurgeon might, if, if he were writing his lectures to my students today, what might be some of the other bullet points he would incorporate into that? Well, you know, now not talking about the subject of, of benevolence and mercy ministry and social concern, I think he he would be concerned that it's very easy for preachers today to get sidetracked with things like politics, social media, cultural things going on. I think he would urge us to preach the text. I think he'd urge us to preach Christ. I think he'd urge us to uh, focus on building up the health of the church and to plant churches, to see the gospel go forward. 
and to not become mired in things that that either are secondary or even altogether peripheral. So I think he would he would urge us to guard against missional drift. I think that would be a concern that he would have today. It was a concern he had in his own day. I mean, he, he died with that concern among those who were his students or even his spiritual grandchildren at that point. I think he was concerned that they would give up on preaching, that they would give up on treating the word of God in such a way that it that it is indeed sufficient to do the work that God has for the word to do. I think he was concerned about that and be concerned about that in our context. Alex, have you ever had the opportunity to visit Metropolitan Tabernacle? I have. I was able uh, in my doctoral work and then for Spurgeon and the Poor, uh, consult the archives there, which was quite an experience and um, gleaned a lot from that time. They were so hospitable to me in, in my research there. And it, it is that church today, I think, is very much continuing. And there's some peculiarities about the church, but continuing in Spurgeon's legacy. Dr. Masters has been preaching there faithfully for decades now. He's quite advanced in years. But you go there on a Sunday, there's a about a thousand people, maybe twelve hundred people. They're translating into seven or eight languages every Sunday, uh, and they are reaching that area of South London, the Elephant and Castle. I mean, it's not a, a it's not a, an easy neighborhood to reach. But what you'll see if you go there on a Sunday to worship, about a couple hours after the service, they fill that building every square inch with Sunday schools and children's ministries, and there's a tea going on for. Uh, blind folks here and disabled folks over here. I mean, it's a working church that is both, I think, honoring Spurgeon's legacy of gospel preaching and sound doctrine and his heartbeat for needy people, mercy ministry, care for those uh, who are disadvantaged in all kinds of ways. So it's a beautiful thing to see. That's amazing. Alex, this season, we're focusing on spiritual formation with every podcast that we do. It really doesn't matter the topic. And some of them lend themselves to this question more than others. But how does this conversation about Spurgeon, especially Spurgeon and the poor, but really Spurgeon and, and all things Spurgeon, what does he have to teach us about spiritual formation? Well, I'll I'll give the narrow answer with regard to Spurgeon and the poor and then go more broad. So, so two answers. With regard to this topic we're talking about today on the podcast, I would say uh, from the standpoint of spiritual formation, Spurgeon's concerned that we be not hearers only, but but doers of the word that our ministries, our lives would come to fruition both in word and in deed, uh, and that we would not be those who just grow fat on sermons and fat on truth and don't allow that truth to affect our hands and our feet and our hearts. So uh, he often will speak to his congregation in that way, that uh, the stewardship that we have as those who have the truth, are we, are, we, are we using it to any good purpose in this city and among people in our communities and our spheres? How can we use the truth to honor Christ and how can we serve others and show mercy and all those kinds of things? So ministry of word and deed. Um, but then you know, kind of zooming out, what is the big contribution I think Spurgeon can give to us as we think about spiritual formation? And I think it would be the centrality of Christ. I think that's his, his big legacy. I think that's why he remains so relevant today. Um, it would have been something to hear Spurgeon preach. We don't have any recordings of that. I, I imagine it was an extraordinary experience. But even when you read his sermons, Christ leaps off the page. You, you just, you, he, he, he gives off the aroma of Christ. He gives to us the bearing and disposition of Christ in the way he preaches, in the way he writes. There's so much of Jesus uh, in his sermons, in his view of the Christian life, in his understanding of the gospel and of the mission of the church. So I think whether it's in conversion itself, someone struggling with Christian assurance, uh, if someone's going through suffering or some kind of temptation, uh, in all those situations, Spurgeon is going to give a very Christ-centered kind of remedy. He's going to point us to Christ 
as the uh, as the solution, as the answer. And um, I think that's that's why people continue to go to that well of uh, of Spurgeonic uh, theology. Spurgeonic, that's right. Well yeah. said. Well said. Alex, how can people follow your work and where can they buy your new book? Yeah, so Spurgeon and the Poor just became available. Uh, Reformation Heritage uh, is my publisher. Uh, they just put it up on their website. It should be showing up on Amazon and wherever books are sold here in the next few days. And then uh, I have a few other projects I'm working on in the world of Spurgeon. The one I'm most excited about is I'm working on a popular biography of Spurgeon that should turn up in the next year or two. Um, but then, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not chiefly a scholar anymore. I'm I'm a pastor and a preacher. So if you're ever in the Winston-Salem area, come visit our church, Emmanuel Church. That's that's my life's work. Dr. DePerma, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Alex. Well, thank you, brothers, for having me. It's been a joy. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Today we have with us Dr. Brad Hambrick. So, Dr. Hambrick, what's on your bookshelf right now? Yeah, right now something that uh, I'm reading and really enjoying uh, is a book entitled The End of Memory uh, by Miroslav Volf. Um, And what I like about it Uh, is it asks a neglected question about an important subject. Uh, It's it's not an autobiography, um, but a lot of Miroslav's story is in there, uh, where he was a political uh, prisoner of war uh, in Yugoslavia when they had some governmental changes. uh, And as he was wrestling with his faith in light of that, um, basically the question was, I can forgive... Uh, He calls him Captain G, his chief interrogator. But I can't forget. What do I do with the memory of this profoundly painful experience uh, that consumed more than a year of my life? I would have to remove chapters from the book of my life to forget what happened. How do I honor God with the memory of forgiven offenses? Um, and uh, it's the kind of question uh, that uh, maybe it's neglected because it would be hard to preach on neatly in 30 minutes on a weekend sermon. Um, But as somebody with a background in counseling, I don't do a lot of 30-minute sermons. I do a lot more three-month or longer journeys with individuals, and this is the kind of question that when somebody's been through something uh, immensely difficult uh, that they're asking, they would love to say, give me the red pill, please, that would let me forget uh, forget what happened. But this is a significant enough event. It was a large, in terms of quantity of time, uh, that I can't remove it uh, from my history. Uh, and I think as you read uh, Miroslav's work, uh, you'll find that he's both biblically saturated, um, but also he is biblically faithful. So there's, there's a faithfulness to Scripture. There is a, a frequency with which he refer, references it. Um, he's much more of a theologian than he is a counselor, like if you were to uh, get to know his background and, and what he does for a living. But uh, if you're in ministry and you're going to be walking alongside of people uh, who've been hurt in profound ways, uh, I think this is the kind of book 
um, that would help you come in a more patient way, uh, that would be a more accurate ambassador of the Good Shepherd who walks with people uh, through hard times like this. Uh, So again, the book is The End of Memory uh, by Miroslav Volf. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Again, thank you for listening to our podcast and have a great week.